We have a new pope named Francis, and I think most of you realize without me going into it that this may, I'm not going to say will, but probably will portend the speeding up of biblical prophecy. We don't know what this man is going to do yet. He's very charismatic, which is very nice, but that makes him all the more dangerous. He can win the people back to the Catholic Church with his humility and his kindness and this kind of thing, which is good. But at any rate, we'll have to see what happens. But certainly it indicates prophetic things are going to speed up. And for that, we can be thankful because we're certainly looking forward to Christ's return. The last couple sermons I've given have been kind of pre-Passover sermons. I talked about Christ's sacrifice, His shed blood, His broken body, and what He went through on behalf of our sins. And then I talked later, as I think Mr. Harp noted, on how we ought to examine ourselves and get ourselves right before Christ comes and before we take the Passover. I want today to speak today about another aspect of Christ. I'm not going to get away from speaking about Christ. This is the other aspect of Christ's work. How does Christ live his life in you? How does Jesus Christ as our high priest and living head live his life in you? That is certainly one of the most important things Christ is doing right now. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 5, and beginning here, and let's start in verse 6. Paul wrote, For when we were still without strength in our carnal lives, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we always want to remember that. We were still sinners. We had been sinning and sinning and sinning and going our own way. And Christ died for us. He didn't get mad at us, as Mr. Hart described, about a helpless little child. We were like that compared to God. And Christ died for us. Much more than, get this, having now been justified by his blood. Here's where the Protestants get all mixed up. So notice carefully what I'm saying. Yes, Christ justified us by his blood. Justify means to forgive your past sins, to line you up, to make you right. And some of them to say declared righteous. It can be that, but frankly it goes beyond that when you understand the Bible. Some of the Protestants try to limit it to that. But Christ made us right in the sense we're lined up, we're declared righteous by the blood of Christ. Our past sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. But that does not save us. They sometimes get justify and save mixed up. Notice it goes on here. We're justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God, justified, in other words, through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, having been justified, we shall be saved by what? By His death? No, we shall be saved by His life. That's how we're ultimately saved. And that gets right back to my favorite scripture, Galatians 2 and verse 20, which is the best one verse explanation of Christianity in all the Bible. Certainly you can make it far complete, more complete by citing many verses, but I think this is the best one verse where the apostle Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ, yet I live. I'm not a dead man, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of, as it ought to be, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. So Christ lives his life in us. We are saved, we're justified, we're forgiven our past sins by his death. That brought, brings us back right to point zero. We're not under the death penalty, but that does not ultimately save us. We are saved by him living his life in us, by making us like God, by helping us have the kind of character that can make us fit to live forever. We're saved by his life. That's a very, very important thing to understand. That's the other part of the work of Jesus Christ. 
In John chapter 14, if you join me in turning there, John chapter 14, notice I read some of this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to read it again. Jesus said in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. How do you get into eternal life? Christ is the way. He has to live his life in you. He has to bring about your forgiveness, your reconciliation to God, and then live his life in you so you're fit for eternal life. I am the way. I am the truth. They had all kinds of pagan philosophies and ideas and speculations. Christ is the truth. I am the life. I am the life. The only life there is that's worth living. I represent what life is all about. I am the perfect life. And frankly, brethren, I think most of you know this, but it's good to back off and think about it. This doesn't prove that, of course, Christ was the Son of God at all. All the other things we know Christ did prove that. But it's an amazing statement. Either Christ was the greatest and most egotistical braggart in the universe, making a statement like that, I am, or else he was what he said he was. He was God. That's why he could say that. He was the way, the truth, and the life. So he's the way we get into eternal life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't get into the Father through believing the teachings of Buddha, through believing the doctrines of the Mohammedans or Islam. You don't get into eternal life any other way except through the true, not the false Christ, the true Jesus Christ of the Bible. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that's sufficient. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and yet you have known me, Philip? Here I've been with you, God in the flesh. You've seen me helping, giving, serving all day long. You've seen me heal the sick. You've seen me raised from the dead. You've seen me cast out demons. You've seen me quiet a storm and just stop a raging storm right in its tracks. All kinds of things. Don't you grasp who I am? No, they really didn't. And that's why they were shocked. Here's this young man their age, about 30, 31, 32, 33 years old, and they took it for granted. And every now and then he did one of his things, and they thought, wow, what's going on? They were astonished. They were still carnal, and they did not understand fully what they were dealing with. Don't you know who I am? You have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? We see Christ, and we see the Father, I should say, in Christ. He perfectly reflected the personality of God, the mind of God, and most of all, the character of God. Do you not know that I am in the Father and the Father in me, as the Father must be in you and the Father must be in me? And the Father, and the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. At least you can see the sick are healed, demons are cast out, powerful storms are suddenly silenced by the power of God through me. So you can begin to understand what's happening if you think about it, but they still didn't understand it, of course, until after the Holy Spirit came, about seven weeks after Pentecost. Then you go to Philippians chapter 1, so the way we come to God is through Christ and through Christ living in us as God the Father lived in Christ. We're going now to Philippians uh, chapter 1, if you would. And notice here, beginning in verse 18, Philippians chapter 1. Paul wrote, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. So he was very grateful that for whatever reason, Christ was not yet known very much. We may not need that as much today as they did then, but just the name of Christ began to be talked about all over the Roman Empire. Christ has preached, and in this I rejoice and will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now Christ will be magnified in my body. Paul desperately wanted Jesus Christ to be magnified by what Paul said, by what Paul thought, by what Paul did. He wanted to magnify Christ's body in every way he could. Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Because Paul was in danger of death, and he knew that. And even in death, that he could go, go to his death with faith and courage and do those things and say those things that honored God. Right up to the day of his death, he would be honoring God. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Yes, that's the whole point we have. To live is Christ. Christ must live in us. That is our life. If we have any life apart from that, well, we all do, but we'd better be sure that life gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and Christ in us, the life we live in Christ, gets larger and larger and larger. And we have to learn to think of it that way. For me to live is Christ. Christ living, Christ doing, but to die is gain because he knew that he'd been faithful and he would go immediately into the presence of God the next split second, at least that he could understand when he was resurrected. So he understood that. So to lie, to live is Christ. And we must understand life is Christ's life, Christ living in us. Back in Matthew now, brethren, and I want to repeat a little bit here that I covered, but I want it's so important and so wonderful and so basic, I like to preach it every week sometimes. You'd be tired of that. Mr. Armstrong got back to the two trees. You've heard different ones talk about that, and he preached on that for years. About half of his sermons seemed to be about the two trees. But here is Christ speaking, and before that, the description in Matthew 4, verse 23. <clears throat> Matthew wrote, Now Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Sometimes we get scared when we hear the word cancer, when we hear the word diabetes, when we hear the word heart attack. Oh, my, when we hear the word AIDS. That's not too hard for God. It doesn't make any difference. God is God. There is no power to stand up against God. And Christ went about healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. He had the total power of God, and of course he had the total faith of God, which we don't have to that degree, but he did do that. So all kinds of people with the various diseases, torments, and those afflicted with demons were brought to him, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee to Capitalist, Jerusalem, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, Matthew 5 now, he went up on a mountain, and they didn't have any mountains around Israel, by the way, as we think of mountains. We who've lived in California, but they were big hills. They would go up maybe 1,500 or 2,000 feet. So they were big hills, and we think of all things by comparison. So they were big hills that he had, and he went up on the side of one of these big hills like I grew up in, the Ozark Mountains, more the Californians would say Ozark Hills, but they're still big comparatively, and they're pretty. So he went up on the side of this big hill. His disciples came up and sat next to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and we want to review this and review this, and I hope all year long that all of you will go over this section of the Bible once or twice a year at least, every year of your life. This is sort of the foundational statement of true Christianity and what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It doesn't mean you're spiritually poor, as we've explained. It means you're deeply humble. It means you recognize your own nothingness. You are a little speck in the universe compared to the great God. So he points that out. We've got to have that attitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those people who are willing to realize how small they are and how great God is and therefore truly surrender to that God. Blessed are those who mourn. 
Now, there are millions of people mourning right now. No doubt tens of thousands of them in Africa who have just lost a wife or a husband or a young boy beaten up or killed or tortured or that kind of thing and the various tribal wars going on there. People butchered and tortured in the Middle East, in Central America, in China and other nations in India and around the world, even as we speak. Those things are going on. Those people are not blessed. They're part of the vast majority of humanity who are suffering because of 6,000 years of mankind's rebellion against God. I hope they will be blessed, and the vast majority will when they're, go- they're called, when God opens their minds. But he's talking here, obviously, about people who are mourning spiritually. And you turn back to Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, and it talks about those people would be protected who are sighing and crying for the abominations of Israel, the abominations of Jerusalem. And in chapter 4 of Ezekiel, it shows a key all the way through Ezekiel. Jerusalem was a type of all Israel. And it uses that motif, so to speak, over and over throughout the book. So if you sigh and cry in the right way, we don't want to be overly discouraged, but if you see more of these, I see one of the main senators, more of the one, more famous senators came out today, and he said, well, I'm deciding that same-sex marriage is okay. Why did he say that? Well, he explained he thought it was okay because his son comes to him and tell him, I'm a homosexual. What if my son comes to me and tell he's a homosexual? Uh, I'm too big to beat up on them. <laughs> but I would really get in his face and say, what's going on? Who screwed up your mind? I've taught that a man is a man, a woman is a woman, and the whole purpose of life, and that has never happened to me, and I'm sure it never will. But this man thought he'd change his whole concept of marriage, God's definition of marriage between a man and a woman, because his son was afflicted with what the American Psychiatric Association just recognized a few decades, decades ago as a mental illness. They had it classified as a mental illness. Many books have come out with that. The homosexual lobby was so powerful and arrogant and pushy that they got them to change it. So now they're going along with it. It's not, it's not a normal thing at all, and most of us realize that. But we can be sighing and crying as we realize more young men are not eating. They're eating these processed foods. They don't have the vitamins. They're lacking their vitamin E. They don't have the wheat germ in the wheat anymore. They're getting all kinds of bad vibrations from the schools around them, the churches around them. The whole society says men are to be like women and women are to be like men. So they're getting it physically, mentally, psychologically from every point of view. And some of the young men are breaking down and going along with that. They are not born homosexual. By the way, I'm digressing a little bit, but I think I should tell you all that again and again because some of our young churchmen may get that in their heads. Get this, young men or women. You are not born homosexual, period. If Almighty God made you a homosexual, then God created you for the lake of fire. Does God create anyone for the lake of fire? No, he does not. Homosexuals, if they don't repent, murders, if they don't repent, child molesters, liars, thieves, will all end up in the lake of fire. We know that. God did not create anyone to be that way. He allows people to have a tendency to be overweight. They have certain genes in their family, and they tend to be that way. If they give into that and eat a certain lifestyle, then they more have more harder time fighting it than someone who doesn't have that tendency. Others will have a tendency toward high blood pressure. Others in their family genes will have a tendency toward cancer, diabetes. Others will have a tendency toward alcoholism. That's an inherited tendency. There are those tendencies, and you can have those tendencies. But that does not mean you need to be fat. It does not mean you need to be a homosexual. It does not mean you need to be a drunkard. You can always control yourself through the help of God's Spirit, and that's what God wants us to do. And we can do that and must do that. But we should sigh and cry over the absolute abominations that our beloved nation is getting into where more and more hundreds of thousands, millions of people are getting into these perverted lifestyles where young men and women will just live together 
without benefit of marriage, and then they'll have it come out in Parade magazine or even some of these mainstream publications as though it's just fine. Miss so-and-so and her boyfriend are living together. They don't say it's bad. They just act like that's, you know, two and two equals four. They take it for granted. It never was taught to granted when I grew up, and most of you old people know that. The young people, some of them don't know that. It's all around them. That is not something to take for granted. That's an abomination. That must not be, and that will not be. Well, another few decades from now, Christ will come to this earth as king of kings, and they will learn to have the right kind of life, the right kind of marriage to a person of the opposite sex, and they will have children, and they will have family, and they will have decency, and they will have the right kind of love and joy and peace that God intended. But we can certainly cry and sigh and just ask God, please, Father, send, send Jesus soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, as these abominations get worse and worse all around us. They're reflected in the TV programs. They're reflected on the Internet. They're reflected in almost everything you read. They're reflected in our music. It's sick, and we have to sigh and cry that we have to be part of it. Blessed are the meek, those who are teachable. Meek means humble and teachable. It has that inference. For they shall inherit the earth. Learn to be teachable if you're going to be in God's kingdom if you're going to reflect Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here's Christ's basic teaching. Don't just read the Bible once in a while. Please, brethren, don't just pray once in a while. Get up early in the morning and begin to seek God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Learn to be merciful to others. That doesn't mean you accept their lifestyle. That doesn't mean you say they're as good as we are. You're not judging them. God's Word is judging them. You don't have to be mad at them. In fact, you you would not help them if you accepted what they did. That would just make it all the more easy for them to sin. That is not love. That's foolishness. So don't go along with evil, but do be merciful so you don't hate, you don't want to hurt them. Blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart are those who don't have some special personal axe to grind. They simply want to do God's will. Not my will, but thine be done. That is a pure attitude, a pure heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Some people like to stir up trouble. They will, well, the church is against us, the minister is against us, or our, our boss over here. We don't like him because of whatever. They're not peacemakers. They want to stir up trouble. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And we will have to go through a lot of that in years to come. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. All of God's true prophets were hated. All of God's true prophets were persecuted. They weren't all hated by everybody. I don't mean that, but they certainly had a certain degree of hate. And Jesus described how many of them were killed and they were run out of town. They were beaten. They were thrown in prison. They were sawn asunder, sawn right in two. As Hebrews 13 says, it wasn't fun stuff all the time. They had to prove to themselves that God is real, that Christ is real, and I'm going to give my life to that God, and I mean it right down to my toenails. You have to come to that and want to live this way. So try to blaze those basic thoughts in your mind that Christ is going to live his life in you, and then you can move forward from that basis based on those very principles. Now turn to Matthew 6, if you would. In Matthew 6 here, it describes, of course, all the way through how to pray, how to fast, and so on, rules of Christian living, how to give and not to give to show off. So it says when you do good deeds, be sure you don't think too much about it or brag about it. And he says when you pray in verse 9, in this manner, therefore, pray. And this is another part of reflecting Christ. Learn to pray as Christ prayed 
Again, this is very basic, but I want us to get it. Our Father, how do you start your prayer? Christ tells you, start out by acknowledging the Father. Not a Father on earth, but our, not my Father, I'm the Great One, our Father in heaven, the Great King, the Great Ruler of heaven and earth. Hallowed be your name. So you start out your prayer by hallowing God's name. You finish your prayer by hallowing God's name, as we shall see. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, of course, many people in the world think the kingdom is the church or the kingdom is a warm feeling in their heart or whatever. We know the kingdom is a literal government of God to be set up on this earth under Jesus Christ. May Christ come soon. Give us this day our daily bread. Every bit of food we have comes from God. Every bit of water we have comes from God. The air we breathe comes from God. We honor God. We worship God. We adore God. We should constantly remind ourselves of that. Forgive us our debts or trespasses, as it can be worded, and forgive our debts. So we are to forgive others, and we hope we can be forgiven if we do that. And do not lead us into temptation. We're praying, God, don't allow us to be led into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, recognizing there is a Satan, the devil. Constantly be aware of that. He said, pray about that as part of your basic prayer life. Ask God's help in being delivered from that being, that great, powerful, raging lion, seeking whom he may destroy, the evil one. For yours, then he closes by honoring God's name again. For yours is the kingdom. Yours is the coming government to make everything right. Yours is the power, the supreme power in the universe. Yours is the glory forever. Amen. And then he goes to another tremendously important aspect of Christianity that I want to cover right here, of reflecting Jesus Christ. How do you reflect Jesus Christ in your life? For if you... Do forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. God will not forgive you unless you forgive others. And this theme is repeated quite a number of times in the Bible, as most of you know. But I want to just come to one uh, point here. One example is back in chapter 18, Matthew 18. Here it tells about a great uh, rich man forgiving a debt of one of his servants. And so then he, he went out and, 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 and tried to take advantage of another servant and would not forgive him who was serving him. And then God says, you wicked servant. This is Matthew 18, verse 32. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you and his master? A very picture of God here in the Bible. His master was angry and delivered him to the tortures that he should pay all that he owed that was due to him. So, Jesus said, my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you, get this, brethren, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother. We've got to learn to forgive others from our heart. I don't always do that. You don't always do that, probably. And then I'll go back later and realize this, this guy stabbed me in the back and went off and caused trouble, maybe even hurt the church at one point in time, and I'm bugged at him. It's all right to be bugged at him, and realize what he did was wrong, but not hate him. I've got to be sure that from the heart, I hope the best for him. You've got to be willing to forgive from the heart those who have hurt you, who may have destroyed your job, who may have destroyed your career, who may have helped destroy your marriage, who may have destroyed your wealth, who may have hurt you in other ways. We don't know how they've hurt you. You know. It doesn't make any difference what it is. You have got to ask God to help you forgive them from the heart. That ain't easy, as we say. It isn't easy. We've got to have God's help to forgive others from the heart so God will forgive us. 
then we can have a clean attitude toward every human being and we can hope that God will, in His mercy, teach them lessons. But we're not to ask God, bring them down, give it to them, give it to them. You know what I mean? That's not to be our attitude. And I know I'm back in Joplin High School, that we, our cheerleaders, the pretty young girls who were the cheerleaders for the football team, there, there was this cheer they used to give when the, we were blocking and knocking the other guys out or whatever and say, hit them again, hit them again, harder, harder. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not to be our attitude spiritually. We're not to ask God to hit them again harder and harder. We say, Father in heaven, if this man has hurt me, if he's done bad to my child, bad to my wife, bad to myself, bad to my career, bad to my everything. Teach him the lessons he needs to learn. But in your mercy, in your mercy, and please help me to forgive him and know you will take care of it in perfect wisdom, in perfect love, in perfect kindness, and so on. Forgive him from the heart and ask God fervently to help you do that. If you can have that attitude, then you can become, as Jesus said earlier, pure in heart. Those are things God wants us to learn. Let's turn on back in the book of Matthew, back toward the end here. Turn at this point, brethren, with me to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. How can you and I reflect Jesus Christ more in everything we think and say and do? We don't want to leave this out. People say you've got to have love. Yes, we certainly do. And some of these things I brought out indicate that, and I'll be covering a lot more. But brethren, there are nice, sweet people, including Protestants and Catholics, who sit around and just think nice thoughts, and they don't stir themselves, but they mean well. They're blind. They don't do anything. Love is something in action. It's not just something to have in your heart. It doesn't do any good for you to sit there and say think sweet thoughts unless you put it into action. So here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the strong from the, the, the one from the other as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And He will set the goats on His right hand and uh, the sheep on his left, uh, the, the sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left, excuse me. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God has had this thought in mind for eons to create beings, full sons in his own image. And here's one attitude he wants those full sons to have. God is the great giver. He gives us life and breath. He gives us our food, our clothing. He made us male and female so we can have someone to love, someone to hold in our arms. We can have family. We can have children. We can have all those wonderful things. And God wants us to have those things. That's why He's made us the way we are. He's the giver of every good and every perfect gift. And we should worship Him and honor Him. But He wants us to give to other human beings as He gives to all human beings. So he said, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. In other words, he's saying that every human being that you help is made in my image. Every human being. And when you help any other human being trying to do it from the love of God, trying to do it for the purpose of God of serving Jesus Christ, in a sense you're laying up treasure in heaven. That's what God wants you to do. He says, I was hungry and so on. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, verse 36, and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. How many of us have visited people in prison? I've only done that a very few times. I probably should have done that a lot more. We have people who are sick. We have people who are thirsty. We have people who are strangers. I've talked to our local team here three to six times. I don't know if we're, how much we're doing about that yet. I'll just remind them we need to bring it up again and get a regular program going and do it even more. Do it even more than we are as a church, officially and individually. It's something we individually can do. 
And I can do more of that. I can't do it as well as some of you who are younger and don't have the pressure of the job that I do. As most of you know, I have a hard time walking around even unless I get up, someone has to pull me up. And uh, I, I have to be helped in and out of doors and in and out of the cars. And I was complaining about a year or two ago. Well, I have these, these pretty young women around here helping me in and out of doors. And I used to help them, and now they're having to help me. I said, it's kind of embarrassing. And this guy said, well, it's the best of both worlds. So anyway, they're helping me now. But I, I can't do as much. But I should try to do more. But some of you young people may not have a whole lot of pressure on you in your job and in your responsibilities. This is a way you can serve. And I hope, Mr. League and Mr. Rodman there, we can get maybe even a youth program going to where it's not just having basketball or tennis, but actually going out and visiting people, helping people, and, and taking care of people. That can help those young people build that kind of thing in their character. The Protestants don't understand the whole truth. I understand that. But I was telling my wife this morning, she was talking about, we were talking about grandparents and the wonderful thing they can be. One of the greatest examples and helps in my entire life was the only grandparent that lived beyond my age nine. My grandfather Meredith died when I was age nine, and my mother's parents died before that. I was only five or six years old, and they were gone. I never really got to see them or remember what they looked like very much. But Grandmother Meredith, Elizabeth Cunningham Meredith, her maiden name was Cunningham, and she was a very good Methodist and in her own way a very good Christian. She went out to visit the poor. She would go out to the little shanties at the edge of town. Joplin was a mining town, and when a mine would close down or subsidiary, you know, industries closed down that were connected to the wines, mines. Some of the people were out of work, and the men didn't have any money. Some of them were living in little shacks. They didn't have enough to eat. And grandmother regularly would go out and take them food. She'd take one or two great big baskets full of food or big sacks full of food, and she'd take her Bible or have a little Bible study and a little prayer and they'd put up with her little prayer to get the food. I know that. So they knew she was trying to do good. And my dad didn't want me to drive very much. I was not a terrible driver. I don't know, but I never got a chance to find out. We only had one old 1932 Buick. It was during the war when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old. The Second World War was raging, and we didn't get... He had to take care of that one car we had, and he didn't want Roderick to wreck it, you know. So he was very careful in how he, often he let me have But he would let me drive the car out to take grandmother out on her visitations. And that was very good for me. I have never forgotten that, how she helped those people, took them food, and I helped carry the big sacks in for her, of course. And then she'd go visit my granddad's grave. She was not a grave robber, but a grave visitor. <laughs> and she liked to go visit his grave. So I got to drive her to the graveyard. My dad didn't like to do that either. And he had to work hard all day. It wasn't his fault. Back in those days, people worked all the time. He worked about 10 hours a day. He came home. He was so tired. Sometimes he'd literally just flop on the floor before dinner and just lie there straight out. Even up in his 40s and 50s, he got very tired working those long hours. So he wasn't lazy. But he let me do some of that for my grandmother. So it helped me. And she had little Bible studies with me and talked to me about God. And God was very real to her. And she'd read me passages from the Bible. No one else did that. My father and mother were good Methodists, but they didn't talk about the Bible. They, they would be mentioned being good or loving God or... Sometimes they'd mention something, but practically never. And certainly grandmother was the only one who would actually open the Bible and talk about it, talk about it, and do good to others in her neighborhood. When she died, she was 91 years old, and most of her friends had already died. Her age, obviously, age 91. But they said the church, the Methodist church, which held three or 400 people, was packed out. People all through that church knew that, oh, they called her Aunt Lizzie. Aunt Lizzie had died, and she had an impact on so many people's lives. And they came out to her funeral because of that. We can do that, too. And with God's Spirit, we can do more of that right here. And all of you in the other churches later who may hear this, I hope you'll all try to do this. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you thirsty, stranger, and so on? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer, Christ will answer, inasmuch as assuredly as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You did it to me. Every human being is made in the image of God. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Did God want to punish everybody? No. But he's giving here a par- parable. It's, it, God knows and doesn't explain here that most people aren't called now. They're not going to have a second chance, but they'll have a first real chance in the great white throne judgment. But the picture is that those who won't ever learn that lesson, they're not going to be in God's kingdom. We've got to learn to give, to help, to serve. Love is active. Jesus Christ was active. He served people, helped them, taught them, blessed them, healed them. No doubt had outflowing concern in the way he talked to them all day long. And you see that all the way through the book of Acts that his disciples helped one another. They divided up their goods. They gave them to everyone who had need. They were doing that all day long. Christ tells us to do that. And so then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, and did not minister you? And he will answer, saying, Inasmuch, surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. And as Mr. Armstrong used to explain, it's not everlasting punishing. You don't burn and yelp and scream and fire forever. It's eternal punishment. Punishment. It happens quickly, but it's over with. And then the sinners will be ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous. So I hope we can learn to have Christ in us. I hope as a church we can do more of these things to help one another. God says back in Galatians, I don't have this in my notes here, but I should perhaps turn to it. In Galatians chapter 6, so you understand, God does tell us to do good to all men. And we can't help every starving person in China or India or Africa. We know that. But we can help them on occasion. But those who are close by, especially those in the church, and God tells us to do that. He says in verse, this is Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Galatians 6, 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. Try to do good to everybody as you have the opportunity, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And that's the example. You don't find any example of the disciples in Samaria or down in Antioch or anywhere else taking up offerings to send over to Africa or Asia or somewhere else. They didn't have the postal systems and travel as we do today. But the whole thing was helping those they could see and help. And most of it was helping others who they were around. If your neighbor in your neighborhood has a fire and their house burns down, you can help them. Even though they're not in the church, you should. They're nearby. That's the example of the Bible. Help your neighbor. Help those you're in contact with. You don't have to be trying to help those who are maybe... 5,000 miles away and you don't even know and you give it to some charity and they may give their, there are some of the charities, you know, like the Red Cross have had these great huge salaries, three, four hundred thousand dollars being paid to these people who are supposed to be helping others. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. You don't know where it's going sometimes, but you can help those in your neighborhood and you can help those in the church and be a giver, be a giver as God is, and reflect Jesus Christ in that way. In 1 Corinthians 13, brethren, it shows the attitude behind this. Love is active, and we've got to do those things. But certainly here's the attitude that must be there always, and I hope we can all understand this and and really have a deeper understanding of this magnificent part of the Bible. It says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I hope that you'll all turn that. I may not read every verse. I see time is fleeting. I got started very, very late. I think most of you know that Mr. Davis said run a little bit late. He knew how late I was starting. But anyway, First Corinthians 13, verse 1. 
Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You see, you can have great orations, you can speak in tongues, you can show off in various ways, but you've got to have love. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I know I've met a number of people in the church in the past. Some fell away. Most of them did, who got overly interested in figuring out every date. They just got their mind on dates, dates, dates. Well, God doesn't give us all the dates. God tells us to love God with all our being and love our neighbor as ourself. He doesn't give us the exact date when Christ is coming back. But people who get their mind on prophecy to that extent, they often fall away from the church. They don't have the basics. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, some Catholics have done that, and Mother Teresa's, but they don't know God. They're not called of God. And though I give my body to be burned, some of these monks out, remember, in Vietnam and elsewhere set themselves on fire to protest the government as we, as I was younger, but have not love. They weren't showing love as a political action. They were burning themselves alive to make a political point but have not God's love to love God with all their being and to love their neighbors themselves. I am nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not get upset real easily. It suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. It's not always being resentful of other people having something. Love does not parade itself. It's not showing off all the time. It's not puffed up. does not behave rudely. Some people behave rudely and are just outspoken criticizing others or criticizing the church. Love does not do that. Does not seek its own. I think that's the key phrase in the whole chapter if you had to just boil it down. Love is not thinking what I want, what I want. It's thinking what God wants. Does not seek its own. Sincerely trying to honor God and give your life to God in every way. That is God's love is not provoked, not easily upset, thinks no evil, as you'll see in the margin, it can be translated, uh, keeps no account of evil. I remember one of our leading ministers years ago and worldwide had a little black book. It really was a black book, <laughs> had a lot of black stuff in it. And he tried to keep a record of the leading men, evangelists especially, and he would try to keep a record of one of the evangelist uh, children uh, once daughters had an abortion or they got drunk or they committed fornication or whatever it was bad, he somehow kept it all there and he began to work for me at one point or with me more uh, during a certain situation. And I noticed he was trying to make points with me by telling me all the details of all these men that were still right there around us. And, of course, I got rather concerned. I realized if he has the black book on them, he's going to get a black book on me, too. <laughs> and I was not doing anything terribly bad that I realized the attitude. The attitude was there. Don't do that. Love does not dwell on all that. It's good to know and be sure that you don't. I've had to be aware of those who plot plots and may try to overthrow the work because I saw two or three times people doing that with Mr. Armstrong and I had to warn him. I had to help him two or three different times to hold things together. So it doesn't mean you have to be stupid. You can understand. You can under tell your lieutenants in the work, be careful here, watch out there. But you don't want to hate the person. You don't just try to keep account of every one of their sins. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. You're glad when people do what's right. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Real love has outflowing concern. As you know, as Mr. Hart was bringing out in this in a different way, but a little baby boy, let's say, may literally come up and hit its mother. And I've seen little children do that, bite their mother or hit their mother. And the mother says, oh, don't do that, Johnny. She knows it's a crazy little kid and, and it's a little tiny kid. Well, she's not going to get all mad. Love never fails. She still loves that child. That's her child. If you're really a bad guy, a really bad guy, and you've killed someone or maybe raped women and killed them later, and you're going to be put in the electric chair and they allow one visitor in there and everyone else hates you, who's going to be in there 
to stand right with you at the end of your life. Probably your mother. (laughs) Probably your mother. She will love you no matter what. Love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. We don't know all the details of prophecy and what lies ahead. And that's not the important thing. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things, all these little attitudes of getting upset about little things that are going on. It's not important. Having little wars in the sandbox. Having little wars that were playing, you know, little boys playing marble. You got my doogee. You swipe my, 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 my little marble or something like that. God's amused when we get upset about little things like that. For now we see in a mirror dimly. We don't fully understand God or all the details of things. But then face to face, we will finally know God, walk with God, talk with God, commune with God, and fully at some point know God as He knows us. And now abide faith, hope, and love. That absolute faith, knowing God, the hope, that attitude of Romans 8:28, knowing in a positive way, which helps us love God and love our neighbor, all things will work for good for those who love God, having that attitude, but love. But the greatest of these is love, that genuine outflowing concern. That comes from where? It comes from Jesus Christ living his life in us. And that's the thing we have to realize. That's the thing we have to meditate about. Now let's go to Colossians, if you would. Colossians chapter 3, brethren. And here in chapter 3, it says in verse 8. I'll just pick up. I wanted to read more, but just part of it here. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Brethren, if there's one thing you better, really, if any kind of a Christian better get rid of the lying. If you're a liar and a liar and a liar and you're always exaggerating, you're always twisting things, then God can't trust you. He hates those who love and make a lie, it says back in, in Revelation. And if you say, I'm sorry, I say, well, I, I hope you mean it, but you never meant it before. How do I now know you're not lying again? You lied before, you lied another time and another time. Now you're telling me you're telling the truth. I don't know that. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man and his deeds. You have put on the new man. Who is the new man? Christ lives his life in you, who is renewed in the knowledge of the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. That's the point. Christ must be in us. Therefore, as the elect of God, whole and beloved, put on tender mercies. Have that kindness. What is desired in a man? It says back in Proverbs. Loving kindness. Loving kindness is the Hebrew. Put on loving kindness, humility of mind, meekness, humbleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, not anxious to get the other person, not anxious to catch him in a mistake, not anxious to put him down, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so do also you must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Study this book. Study, please, brethren, study this book. It's the mind of God. Drink in of it. Feed upon it. Drink in of the mind of God, and may it dwell in you richly. Then he goes on in verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do everything in the name of Jesus Christ. Because if you are walking with Christ, 
you should be wanting Christ to live his life in you in everything you think and say and do. Notice book the back in Galatians now. Turn back to the book of Galatians here. And in chapter 5, he describes the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Again, these are the fruits of Christ living in us. He says he's talking about the fruits of the flesh, the works of the flesh are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, license, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, and so on, all the bad things of the world. But verse 20, or verse 22, Galatians 5, verse 22, but the fruit, what is fruit? It's the produce, it's the result of Christ living in you through the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, that real genuine concern for others, where you're willing to lay down your life for your brother. Joy. You shouldn't be sad all the time. Some of us have physical trials. Some of, some of us get older. We can't sit around grumbling about that all the time. We've got to go ahead and have joy, serve the best we can while we're here. Do the very best we can while we're here with the strength God gives us. Joy, peace, long-suffering, not quick to get upset, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, not being upset so quickly at others, self-control, that's part of God's fruit, God's Christ's life in us. Self-control, where you don't quickly drink too much. You don't quickly get upset and curse. You don't get upset quickly and get mad and do other things that are wrong. Self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ's, verse 24, if you're Christ, Christ is in you, you will have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk. Let's go that way. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. No, Christ must live his life in us. Now let's turn back again to Colossians, brethren. Turn with me one more time to the book of Colossians, and I'm going to begin reading here in chapter 3. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ. You see, Christ is your life. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, please read about that often. When Christ, who is our life, he's to live in us, move in us, help us to help others, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You will be glorified if you have this Christ living in you. And then he says over in verse 16, I think we want to pick up here in verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, whatever you, if you're in music, if you're in art and literature, if you're in outside industry, you're in church, you're out on the job, you're playing sports, you're having the right approach or wanting to have the right approach as a husband to your wife, a responsive wife to your husband, being a good parent, being a good neighbor in the neighborhood, whatever it is, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, being thanks to God the Father through him. So God wants us to have that spirit and that approach, as I say, in everything that we think and say and do. And certainly that's what God wants. So I hope we can do that. And brethren, I hope in all those ways we can reflect Jesus Christ we can learn to be givers like God is giver, giving your life to Christ, giving your life to God through Jesus Christ. And in that way, you will be reflecting. You will be reflecting Jesus Christ in everything you think and say and do. And this is Christ living his life in you. And this, of course, is the final work. This is the work of Christ. Christ died for you to reconcile you to God. Christ is guiding your life now, but his final work is making you into the spiritual masterpiece as a full son of God, where Christ will be living his life in you, and you will be reflecting Christ, and then you will be worthy 
through Christ in you, you will be fit to live forever in the kingdom and family of God and so fulfill the purpose for which God created you, for which God has guided your life and called you, and the purpose for which God is guiding you now and giving you strength. You will fulfill God's purpose by having Christ live his life in you. Try to reflect Christ. Let Christ do the final job. This is the final work of Christ and fully making you like God the Father and like Christ.